and uh, that's a blessing. Praise the Lord for it. Take your Bibles, Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2 tonight in your Bible. There was a few things we were trying to get, but they, we, uh, they wouldn't arrive on time, so we'll save those for next year. We're gonna, we've made notes on the calendar to uh, order certain things so they'll be here on time for Father's Day. And I hope you, again, appreciate the gifts. It's, we don't can't hand out $1,000 to everybody, but just a little thank you, a little something of our love and appreciation for you all here. And now today with you needing grocery bags, this will help you a little bit. And as Brianna likes to say, we got merch. Amen. I'm learning lingos around this word, place I never heard before in my life, but I'm, people sound, I know what I sound like I'm talking about, you know. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's bow for prayer. Father, bless the time, bless the hour. Now we thank you for your goodness and mercy. Help us tonight as we look to the word. May our hearts be opened and attuned to what the Spirit of God has to say. May we have ears to hear. And I pray, dear God, if anybody here tonight does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that this would be the night that they come and get that issue settled. For Christians who are struggling and, and uh, hurting, Lord, meet their needs as well. And Father, we pray again you'll, you'll help them and know you are God. And all things are in your hands and nothing can happen to us without your divine uh, approval. That's the time now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we started last Sunday night a message, and, uh, and I want to back up a little bit and, uh, and try and maybe clarify some things that were not, because a few people had some questions, not just one or two, but a few. And we want to, again, clarify scriptural truth. We are discussing the topic of lordship salvation and what lordship salvation is, what people say it is. Now, again, the word lordship salvation is a man-made term. You won't find that phrase in the Bible, just like you won't find Calvinism in the Bible. That's a man-made word. The rapture is a man-made word, but that's a biblical term. There's a phrase people use. It's called easy believism, and that's a man-made term. And sometimes it's interesting to know who comes up with these terms and where they come from. Now, the term uh, easy believism is one that was coined or invented by those who believe in what is called lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is the idea that when you get saved, you are to, supposed to surrender everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your will is completely surrendered to him. You cannot be saved until you basically say, you know what, Jesus Christ, whatever you want me to do, and and, uh, and I'll surrender completely to your will. Now, uh, those who believe in that look at others. And again, I, this is where I want to spend a little time on what is, exactly is easy believism. And I also want to look at some verses here to help us as we go through this. Take your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians tonight in your Bible. The term easy believism is a... It's a bad term 
Because the gospel is easy to believe. It's not complicated. It's not hard. So when you say you believe in easy believism, uh, uh, you have to understand the definition of what they mean by that. But I believe that it's easy to believe and be saved. It's not, it's not complex. I'm, I don't have to learn a calculus course and, and then figure out geometry and then how to do brain surgery in order to, if that was the case, I, I say, sayonara, I'm going to hell, and, and that's over with because I'm not, I, I, I'm not wired to, to do all that. So God, in his wisdom, made salvation in such a way that people could hear it, understand it, and then call upon the Lord to be saved. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 3, But I fear, 11.3 of 2 Corinthians, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now again, the, the Corinthians were saved people. They were born again by the Spirit of God. He calls them brethren. He, he, he directs his conversation to them. And he's talking to them. Uh, and the Spirit of God is talking to them like they're, they're believers. They're saved. The problem is with Christianity is we get saved. And if we do not get indoctrinally straightened out and get into a good church, we can get off into error and believe things that are not 100% so. And we can be corrupted through the subtlety. And Satan is very subtle in how he attacks. He doesn't come right out and say, you know, you need to deny the virgin birth, but he comes subtly around the corner and, and sneakily works into a person's life. But the simplicity that is found in Christ. What's that mean? What's that expression mean? The simplicity that's in Christ. It simply means that the gospel is a simple plan. It's not a complex plan. There's not a lot of moving parts to it. You, you, I'm not a puzzle person. My mom would do puzzles. She'd do crossword puzzles, and she would sit there in the morning, do crosswords, and she would. there was another game she played, and she had a... Uh, you know, you, you get a big giant word and then you had to figure out how many words you could make using that word. So she would have a pen and a pad and she would have like, you know, and, and, and they would tell you there are 17 words in this word. And my mom would always come like 15, 14, 16, and on occasion she would get all of them. Again, she was very good at those puzzles. I look at that like I got the and I'm done. And I see, but she would do those puzzles, and, and she liked to do those puzzles. They, they, they work your brain, and sometimes they're very complex. I don't like crossword puzzles. I, I, that's just not me. Miss um, Helen does a, a math puzzle, and, uh, and she, she showed me this book where she's doing this math puzzle. Maybe you know the, what it's called. What is it? Yeah, something Japanese or something. That's it. And uh, Soku or Suku or what is it? Yeah, that's it. And she said, you ought to do this pass on me. Yeah, hello. And uh, I said, no, I'm not doing that. I live life. That's a puzzle enough for me, all right? <laughs> I'm struggling to get through this thing. So you, she, they, she's doing those puzzles. My friend, the gospel is not a puzzle. It's not a puzzle. The Apostle Paul, if we back up just a little bit, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 
Again, he says in verse number one, moreover, brethren. By the way, anytime you see that word brethren, who's he talking to? Believers. Believers. Or saved people. I circled it and I wrote saved. So again, he's not writing to lost people. This is addressed to Christians. Moreover, Christians, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, lest ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul preached that truth to them, that Jesus Christ was died, he was buried, and he rose again. Now that's the gospel, that's the good news, that Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do, and he, he bore our sins on Calvary's cross. That's the, that's the gospel. The apostle Paul, in, in, in writing to the Galatians, again, believers, is encouraging them because, again, Paul is warning the Corinthians because they are being deceived by false teachers. They're, they're, they're on the path, but they're, they're being veered off by somebody who's leading them in the wrong way. Go to the book of Galatians with me, if you will. The book of Galatians. The, church, the, the, the book of Galatians is not written to a church, but churches in a region. Much in the same way as we can say if it was today, Paul would be writing to the churches in New Jersey or New York. So it's written to a group of churches. So the, in churches in the area of Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And again, these churches were being deceived. Paul had come in, he preached the gospel, people got saved, and they established local churches. He stayed there, worked with it, trained a man and, and to become pastor, and him and, and, and Barnabas moved on to the next area. Worked, built a church, saved, trained a man, moved on, and so forth. They went around and establishing these churches. But when they left... A group known as Judaizers came in. Now, what's a Judaizer? Well, a Judaizer is, some, is a false teacher who believes that you're saved by grace plus obeying Jewish laws. And so it, it mixes the two. It mixes grace and law. And they were telling these Galatians, hey, you know, what Paul said is right, but Paul wasn't 100%. You, gotta, you also got to get circumcised and you got to obey the, the laws of Moses. And then Paul hears about this, and Paul breaks out his pen and starts writing, saying, No, don't listen to these people. They're liars. They're false teachers. They're deceiving you from the simplicity that is found in Christ. We're saved from works. We're saved from law. We don't have to obey law. The God, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on Calvary's cross and died and, and satisfied God's demands, and we rest in his finished work. And he says in verse number 6 of Galatians, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now it doesn't mean they lost their salvations, but their, their, their faith is being deceived. Their Christianity, they're, they're believing error. And Christians can believe error. And unless somebody comes along and they're going to listen to that person and be straightened out. And so the Galatians are believing, yeah, we've got to be circumcised. because that's, Well, that's what the Bible says. 
See, and, and, and these Judaizers held up a copy of the law, and they're like, oh, yeah, we do have to be circumcised, and oh, yeah, we do have to obey laws. I guess that's right. And, and Paul didn't really understand everything. Paul was, Paul was good, but he wasn't that good. And Paul writes, no, I, how is it possible? How is it possible that you are so soon removed from the truth to believe this garbage? And he says... Verse 7, which is not another. By the way, there's not another gospel. There's only one. There's only one gospel. It's not, well, the, the Catholics have their gospel, and the Mormons have their gospel, and the Jehovah Witnesses have their gospel, and we have our gospel. Gospel means good news, means truth. There's only one truth. So we all don't have a gospel. They may have a teaching, they may have a doctrine, but they don't have a gospel. Understand the difference. Gospel is the truth of God's word. And not everybody can have it if it's different. You ever go to a store and you say, I'd like to have a Coke. Is Pepsi fine? Well, you know, when we say Coke, generally, nine times out of ten, we just mean a cola. We don't, you know, we don't, I demand a Coca-Cola. Listen. Uh, yeah, whatever. People say, is Pepsi fine? Yeah, Pepsi's fine. I, you know, I'll drink that. Or diet, whatever. It's fine. It's a cola. I, I want a cola product. Years ago, back in the 70s, they had taste contest. Which is better, Coke or Pepsi? And they would blindfold people. If you're old, you remember these commercials. And they'd have people drinking a glass of Coke and a glass of Pepsi. And which one tasted better? And people would point. And Pepsi would always seem to win on these challenges. And we'd me and my friends, we were avid Coca-Cola drinkers, and we swore we could taste the difference between Coke and Pepsi. And you can. Coke has a more of an acidic, carbonated taste. Pepsi is more of a sweeter and, and, and not. So we were with these girls, and uh, they were not attractive girls at all, but we were with these girls. And uh, um, my friend was dating one of them. <laughs> anyway, and... Uh, they said, well, we, bet we can trick you. And so they went inside, and they got two glasses of soda, and we tasted it. And I'm like, they don't taste like Coke or Pepsi. And uh, well, we said, well, this one tastes better. turns out they're both C&C Cola, which is really, you know, cheap and cheap. It's what that C stands for. You know, when, you, when, you, when your parents didn't have money, they bought C&C is what they had. Amen? <laughs> Today we don't have C&C. You get Sam's Soda. That's when you know your <laughs> times are tough, when you get Walmart Soda. All right? But you shouldn't drink soda in the first place anyway. You're older now. You're maturing. You want to put that stuff behind you because it's not healthy for you. But you understand, again, we can have various brands of cola, but there's only one gospel. Only one gospel. So when Paul says, uh, we back up and we read the end of verse number 6, that grace unto another gospel, which is not another. It's not another gospel. You haven't believed another gospel. You've believed the lie. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And that's the key. They pervert the gospel. They're taking the truth and they pervert it to believe something else. And he says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than which you have preached, let him be accursed. So again, Paul is encouraging the believers here to be careful of those who may deceive you into believing another gospel. So when we hear about 
again, this man-made term, it's a man-made term of easy believism. Well, what exactly do they mean by easy believism? What is easy believism? What is a person who believes in, and again, and I, 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 I'm against easy believism. And I, am, I do not believe in lordship salvation, but I, I don't believe in easy believism. And, and so what is the terminology of easy believism? What, what, what are we talking about here? Now, the attack against easy believism usually takes two forms. First, there is opposition to those who say they believe in Jesus, but have no outward evidence that they do. You meet people in life, they say, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. And you look at their life and you're like, well, I don't see nothing. I don't see nothing in your life. There's really no evidence. It's like a person says, I go to the gym every day, and they don't look like they go to the gym every day. It looks like they, more, they work, hang out at Chick-fil-A more than they do at the gym. And you're like, I, I, yeah, where? What, what exactly do you do at the gym? You sweep the floors? Because I don't see no evidence of you working out at the gym. There you go. That's, that's, he's working out at the gym. I drove past the gym the other day. I don't know if that counts. But anyway... There's no outward evidence. Of course, no one is simply saved by saying they believe anything. They're not. Of equal importance, it's, rec- it's, it's, it's important to recognize the evidence that one is a true Christian may be very subjective at best. Again, many people appear to be believers in Christ. So you, again, take this. You have one person, I believe in Jesus. And you say, well, I... I don't see no evidence. Somebody over here. I believe in Jesus. And you look at them and you say, well, yeah, they got a lot of evidence. You can't trust either one of those positions. Because what did Jesus say about this guy over here? There will be many in that day who will say unto me, what? Lord, Lord, I prophesied in thy name and I did this and I did that. And he'll say, I I don't know you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I, I, I never knew you. They were never saved, but they got all the outward evidence of it. They got all those signs, and, 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 and they do all those things that make somebody look like a Christian. I had a lady come up the street the other day. I said, this lady's a Muslim. She said, how do you know? Because I couldn't see her. I couldn't even see her eyeballs. She had, you know, they had that tank slot, and, and that was covered with that... Spider-Man mask thing. And so I couldn't even see her eyeballs. I said, look at this dear lady. But me and my astute wisdom and observation said, this is a Muslim. Now, is she a Muslim? Maybe her husband makes her put that garb on so she doesn't get beat to death. But she really doesn't believe it. That's a possibility. A lot of believers over there in the Middle East, by the way, who wear the uh, headgear... This way they don't get their head blown off by some fanatic. But they are not necessarily Muslims. They're Christians. A lot of Christians over there. Again, you may not, we don't agree with the wars and everything that went on over there, but one thing that those wars did that we fought in the last 20 years is the gospel went into those places and Bibles went in by the boatloads into those countries. By the boatloads. So again, we don't... We may not like our boys dying over there, but Christ took an evil thing and he, he used it to get the gospel. And they're, and they're getting saved over there and they're also getting killed over there. But they may look Muslim, but they're Christian. Or if they're a true believer, they'd walk out in the street waving their Bible. And, and, and 
Yeah, like you would. Yeah. So again, you got these two groups. One says, I'm a believer, yet you have no evidence. One group says, I'm a believer, yet he has all the evidence, but again, he's not, because the Bible declares both of these people. So you trying to be the, the inspector is a very dangerous thing. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now again, we, we, we judge righteous judgment. We look at things, and as a pastor, before I put somebody in position, I make sure that, they're, that they have a sound testimony of salvation and they can give a clear presentation of the gospel and, they, and they're, they're stru- trying to be in church. And, and so we look at all those outward things, but I don't know anybody's heart. The only one I know is saved in this building today is me. That's the only one I know is saved because I'm the only heart I can see. Well, Pastor, I'm saved. I believe you, but I, you know, again, and I would, and I would be willing to risk my life that the fact that many of you I know are saved. But again, the only one I know 100% is me. That should not offend you, because you should look at me. Well, is the pastor saved? You say, well, I don't know. He says he is. I believe he is. But the only one I know in this building saved is me. We all should be echoing that in our hearts. So again, any believer. We have to be careful. So again, the attacks upon easy believism is, is again, of two forms. We have to be careful. Just because somebody says they believe in Jesus does not make them a Christian. Secondly, even though it's normally agreed that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, and that's how it is, by the way, we read that verse in Ephesians, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There's nothing else can save you. I'm trusting in Jesus plus the Blessed Mother. She's got nothing to do with it. Not a, not a blessed thing. Only Jesus saves. Again, but there are people out there who do not agree that salvation is by faith alone in Christ. And, and you often hear this type of statement where people will say, you can't tell me that all you have to do is believe. The demons believe in Jesus and they're not saved. And that verse is often quoted from the book of James. Now again, we have to take things and we, 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 we have conversation. For instance, let's see how much money I got here. Just so you know, I, I, got, I got a dollar bill. I'm loaded. Every sermon that's preached, you have one, I have one target. I do what we call... Uh, a single shot method. I don't use a shotgun. A shotgun goes out and shoots everything. I take my rifle with one bullet and I aim at a target and I preach on that target. Today we are talking about George Washington. I am not talking about the owl that's hidden on the dollar bill. I'm not talking about the serial numbers, which prove the Antichrist is going to take over the world and we're all carrying the mark of the beast in our wallet. I'm not talking about those things. You know, I'm talking about George Washington, the worst painting ever of the dear man, and that's the one they use. Imagine your worst photograph, the one you hate the most of you, where you take a, from this angle and you look like Jabba the Hutt and, and horrible... And that's the picture they use to remember you for all eternity. That's this picture of George Washington. All right? The man was a good-looking, tall redhead. 
and they use this one where he looks like he's dying and, and just got run over by a horse. But that's dear George, my, one of my heroes of, uh, of the secular world. So I am preaching on George Washington. But you'll say, Pastor, you didn't discuss the eagles on the back. I was talking about George Washington tonight. But Pastor, you didn't talk about that eyeball on the pyramid. No, I was talking about George Washington tonight. Pastor, you didn't talk about the... Uh, no, I was talking about George Washington tonight. There's a lot of things we can talk about with this dollar bill. But we're concentrating on one topic. When it comes to a message, we have a lot of things. Well, Pastor, you didn't mention... I was focusing on one topic tonight. I can't start in Genesis every message and work my way through Revelation and cover all the bases. We can do that. We'll leave tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning just in time to get you all out of here for work. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So when we look at things, when we look at the Bible, when we're studying a topic, when we look at this topic of easy believism and what people are saying, what does it mean to, when somebody says, well, the, the Bible says that the devils believe? And that's true. But what is it that the devils believe? The belief, devils believe that there is a, there's one God. The devils believe that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. The devils believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. They believe all those things. They believe the gospel. They believe that the death, burial, and resurrection, they know all that to be true, but it doesn't save them. And many people know these things, but they have not made effect on their life because they have not truly accepted it as a Bible fact and truth and been born again by the Spirit of God. They're just facts in their head. A good, devout Jew and and a good, devout Muslim, and a good, devout Baptist or Catholic may believe all those things. Does that verse say anything at all about demons believing in Jesus Christ? Not a word. Now again, it's, if this kind of easy believism described in this verse pertained to the gospel, then any sincere Jew, Muslim, or Jehovah Witness would be saved. So, that, so would all the demons in hell. The kind of belief described in James 2.19 does not save any. By the way, take your Bible, look at James 2.19 so you can see it and know what I'm talking about. Believing the right things and, 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 and how you believe them is important. Verse James 2.19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe... And they tremble. But they don't tremble because they're saved. They tremble because they know they got judgment coming upon them. Remember the demons always tell Jesus, you're not here to uh, cast us into the abyss. You're not here to judge us before our time, are you? They were terrified of Judgment Day. Oh, that the lost world would be terrified of Judgment Day, which is, will come one day. In light of all this, we should condemn any, uh, un, uh, Anything on biblical message that simply teaches or implies that a person can be saved either by simply saying they believe in Jesus Christ or that a person is saved simply by believing in a monotheistic God or whatever that God may be. Oh, Pastor, they're a Christian. Why do they believe in a God? Well, which God? That's why you get these Hollywood actors. I'd like to thank God for this statue today. Well, which God are they talking about? Who are they referring to? We have a guy who inspects our fire extinguishers. His name's Angel. 
I give them the gospel every year, talk to them. Angel, you say, I'm spiritual. Spiritual. That doesn't mean they're Christian, by the way. What do you mean you're spiritual? That's a little spooky. That, that term always, what do you mean by that? You're spiritual. A witch is spiritual. Fortune teller is spiritual. A Satanist is spiritual. You've got to be more specific. That's what it comes down to. So again, when we talk about easy believism, it's not just saying, I believe in God. Most people believe in God. The most. There's some out there. There's atheists out there. But most people believe in God. But again, you meet people, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Well, again, there's a little more to it. There's more to it. And there's the idea of, of, of embracing all that. So again, easy believism comes where people just say, I believe in God. Well, no, there's more to it. You have to understand God's plan. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Sin's bad. Sin takes you to hell. You can't enter into God's presence with sin on your, on your account or on your clothes, so to speak. It must be removed. And there's no remedy that can remove it except the blood of Jesus Christ. And you must come to Him knowing you're a sinner, having a change of mind about your sin, and understanding this is what we see Christ doing. And everybody in the Bible had a change of mind. Zacchaeus, Lord, if I've taken anything from anybody falsely, I will repay back fourfold. And just so I can, you know, I'm saved now. I've had a change of mind about things. I'm not going to rip the people off anymore. And the woman at the well, she was exposed to her sin and her wickedness. And she ran back into the city and brought an entire city to Jesus Christ, who all believed upon him as Messiah. Well, what about lordship salvation? What about those who believe in that? And, and what does that teach? And, and the gist of most lordship salvation teaching is that you must surrender every facet of your life to the complete control of Jesus Christ or you cannot be saved. Again, there's various degrees in there depending on which person you talk to. You must yield absolutely to him as total Lord and master of every area of your life over all that you do for salvation. Now, again, consider the following three verses that are mostly used to support the idea that Christ must be Lord and master of your life for you to be saved. Look, if you will, at Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. This is a text that's used. In Acts 9, verse 6, and he says, and, and, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou do. Again, the advocates of lordship salvation point out that Saul did not call Jesus Savior. He, he called him Lord. They say this indicates that Saul then and there surrendered to the lordship of Christ over his life and therefore was saved on the basis of that complete surrender. Is all, is all of that in this one word, Lord, as evidenced by the immediate context. Again, I, I don't think so. The Though the Lord was used in the Bible in addressing God, it was often as a designation of respect, in similar words to our word sir, and how that may be used in context. For instance, that even when Saul knew it was Jesus speaking, he said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He wasn't sure who he was talking to. In other words, who are you, sir? Who, are you, who am I addressing? He would hardly be surrendering the control of his life to someone he did not know, 
and whose voice he did not recognize. Therefore, saying that Saul was saved in verse 6 by making Jesus Lord of his life is, again, it's a pretty weak statement upon which to pin such an important doctrine. In fact, Scripture indicates that Saul was not... Again, we can discuss when exactly did Paul get saved. Was it here on the road to Damascus? Was it at Ananias' house? When exactly did he become a believer? If we read later on in Scripture, again, this is all the stuff people like to argue about. I don't argue about it, but people like to argue. I'm not an arguer person. He instructed him to go to a specific house, and later Paul related how Ananias came to the house, healed him of his blindness, and said, And now what are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. We see this in Acts chapter number 22, where Paul relates his testimony. Look at it there, if you will, Acts 22. Acts 22, verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now there's an interesting verse that we can take that baptism has to wash away your sins. If we're going to be dogmatic about it, sometimes we find things in the Bible. According to this verse, if you're going to be that way and, 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 and lock in on something and, and make doctrine out of it, according to what Paul is telling us here, that if you want to get saved, you have to be baptized and wash away thy sins. Now, we know from Scripture you don't get saved by being baptized. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. So what is the context of the verse? Again, it's one of those things where you take a story here and a piece here, and you put the whole puzzle together, and you get the complete picture. We're saved by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, and that wash away our sins, and then we get baptized as an act of obedience to the Lord, as we're showing the world we have submitted to Christ for salvation. In Romans 10.13, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a verse we see there. Again, people want to take that verse. And, uh, and, and if we are going to be dogmatic and just take one verse and cling to one verse and hang on one verse... If we use that, then that verse can be deceiving as well. Because again, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what are they calling? What are they doing? Is Again, there's, you back up and you read all the things that come before it that he says about salvation. There's a lot goes into it. There's, a lot of, there's some pieces you have to know. It's still simple, but all of it must be explained to you. I have a friend, a very dear friend. You've heard him preach, Pastor Ken Felder. I've gone soul winning with Pastor Felder when he was a pastor in Oklahoma, and he is probably the most thorough soul winner I have ever been with. We go out knocking on a door, and he's not in a rush to get through and get to the next house. The man will stay there all day, and he will ask somebody, talk to them, and, and get to the conversation, the spiritual things, and ask them if they know they're going to heaven or not. And if they still inquire and want to know, he will take time, and I've seen him 45 minutes at the door taking a lost sinner and clearly explaining the gospel to them so they understand all the parts of it. You're a sinner. Sin's bad. Sin's going to take you to hell. Nothing you can do can remove your sins. You're condemned. And, 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 and then Jesus loves you. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and his death paid for your sins. And, and, and he, his blood... Uh, is the only thing that God will recognize. He goes to the whole thing and before he leads them to where they can accept Christ as Savior. It's not a five-minute, 
Hey, just believe on Jesus. Just believe. Oh, believe what? You believe in Jesus, right? Yeah, believe it. Yeah, you're saved. No. There's some things, but it's simple. There's parts to it, but it's simple. It's not complex. Now, again, people make it hard. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. I've never done anything bad. Have you lied? Well, yeah, that's a sin. Guilty. Now, again, I've met people who tell me they've never lied in their life, which is a lie right there. But they tell you they haven't lied or they haven't done anything bad. If you've driven in New Jersey, you've thought bad things. Uh, all of us. We've all had bad thoughts driving in New Jersey. A lot of psychos out there. You want to talk to Miss Rejoice, she'll tell you about one the other day that sh should be in jail soon. Amen? <laughs> in Acts chapter 16, in verse number 31. Now again, we're in no hurry to finish this tonight, so if you've got to leave, please leave. I, I, I'm not, I know you've got things to do, but I, I, I want to take time and finish this tonight because I'm not preaching next week. And, and then the week after that is, uh, is, uh, is Ethan, and then we go into the summertime. So you won't have to put up with me on Sunday nights for a while now. I'm glad nobody said amen. That's a blessing. Amen, Crystal? That's a good thing. Always encourage me. Somebody, amen! It's usually Caleb. We miss Caleb around here. <laughs> if ever there was a <laughs> wrong, we should call him wrong way Caleb. Amen? <laughs> and I'll be leaving soon. Amen! I was like, what? <laughs> In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. By the way, there's a verse people take out of context. I've had people tell me, well, my family's going to get saved. I'm like, what do you mean your family's going to get saved? Well, I got saved, so the Bible says my family will get saved. I'm like, where'd you get that? Acts 16, 31. Well, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean because you get saved, your family's going to get saved. It simply means that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved, and if your family believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they can get saved. That's what it means. But, it, but again, you take a verse and you... And, 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 and just take it out of context. So again, there's no guarantee your family's going to get saved because you got born again. The only way they get born again is by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptural Jesus Christ. Again, in, in reading the context of this, of this, we understand that, again, when Paul asked them, or when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Their reply was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, how could he say that to them? Because prior to all of this, Paul and Silas were in jail, singing and praising God and talking about the things of God. And what led them to being in jail is that they were getting people saved and they got that little girl who was demon-possessed saved. And now the Philippian jailer has been hearing all of this, and now he hears these two fanatical Christians singing and praising God and praying in jail. And now he wants to know what he has to do to be saved. But the entire plan has been laid out prior to this, and so he knows what does he have to do to accept this gift. And Paul simply says, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll be saved. But again, prior to this, it's all been mapped out. It's all been laid out. So you tell a Catholic, hey, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they already believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They already believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're not saved. 
because they believe Lord Jesus Christ comes in the form of a cracker that they ate. And, 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 they, and Jesus Christ is in the form of juice that they drank. Or he's hanging around their neck. Or his heart is hanging on their wall. And they have Christ. So they believe, no, no. So the Philippian jailers heard all of these things. So when Paul says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, again, the, to use the word Lord here is showing in that this man Jesus, who is Christ, he is also Lord and deity. You must believe in him as such as the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, surrendering your life is not the issue. It's trusting in him to save you. We go to Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. Again, here's the verse. We can take it all out of context and just focus on one verse. Verse number 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, Jehovah Witness believes that. A Mormon believes that. But they got different Jesus, don't they? The Jehovah Witness Jesus is a, is a God. Not the God. He's a God. God the Father created Jesus. The Mormons have Jesus, but God the Father with one of his wives, gave birth to Jesus. And God the Father, with another wife, gave birth to Satan. So Jesus and Satan are brothers. And one day, God was hanging out in heaven and said, Hey, we want to save mankind. How should we do it? Hey, Lucifer, what's your plan? And Lucifer came up with a plan, and then he looked at Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what's your plan? And Jesus gave his plan, and God the Father said, Hey, I like your plan, Jesus. And then Lucifer got mad and rebelled, and God kicked him out of heaven and became Satan. You say, Where'd that come from? They made it up. But again, if you ask a Mormon, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, they do. But it's not our Jesus. It's not the Bible Jesus. Definitions. Words can be the same words, but we've got to get definitions. Definitions are what's important. That's why sometimes we have to ask questions. Oh, when you, what do you mean by that? Who do you think this is? The Lord looked at Peter and his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? You've told me already who these people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it right. You're the Christ, the anointed, the Mashiach. You're the, you're the, you're the one. They believe that. Again, while easy believism, as we described earlier, is decidedly too easy... So making Christ Lord over one's life is certainly too hard or impossible. Because again, how much of my life do I have to surrender? Am I surrendered enough? People always ask me, Pastor, do I have, do I have enough faith to save me? Did I believe enough? Well, what do you mean, did you believe enough? This is, not, this is not, again, using our gym analogy. This is not the gym. You know, people go to the gym, you see these guys there, and they're like, you know, they got, the, the bar is bending because they've got every weight in the gym on the bar. And they're, ah, and they got, Guys spotting him and, and, ah, and they, they lifted, you know, 500 pounds. They're all excited. Well, there's a, some skinny guy in the corner with 20 pounds going, <laughs> you know. So how much do we have to believe? Well, again, it's just belief. I believe that. It's not a, I believe, I really believe, I really do. It's like, what do you do when you have an aneurysm? What's, what's wrong with you over there? You just got to believe what the Bible says as it's laid out. 
When followed to its logical conclusion, if we were to take lordship salvation to its extreme, it turns into works. Because I better be surrendering. I better be committing my entire will. I better be doing things when taken to the extreme. Just like easy believers are taken to its ex- extreme, doesn't have salvation. But in the middle, my friend, there is a truth that I believe what the gospel and what the Bible says, and I've accepted Christ. Now as I am saved, and i got this new man in me, I do want to grow in my faith. I want to learn more. I desire to know more. Just like falling in love. Guy sees a girl, who's that? Well, you like her? Well, you know, she's, she's all right. Want to know who she is? My, I told you this story. My niece, one time, she was her boyfriend. She broke up with this loser. But uh, we, I was talking to him. I said, well, how would you guys meet? And he was, oh, I saw her in the gym, and she was working out. And, and so I, uh, you know, got on my phone and Googled her and found her. And I was like, a little creepy. Just a little creepy. Amen. So, so I said, basically, you're a stalker. And we, they all laughed. Well, that's how it works. Amen. In my day, you really had to stalk somebody. You had to find out where they lived, walk past the house, then get a phone book and, and go to the phone book. You had to work to be a stalker back in my day. Today, it's just phones and you find out who everybody is. And you can, the next day, everybody's accepting friend requests on all those MySpace and all those other up-to-date programs kids are using. All right? <laughs> now, I want to know more about Christ. I want to know more who he is because I'm now I'm saved and I've got a new man in me. But when it comes to salvation, there are key doctrines that we do believe in. We believe in justification by faith. To be justified means to be declared righteous. When God saves a sinner, God justifies a sinner. He does something much better, much better and more complete than saying he's innocent or forgiven. He declares that he has absolutely righteous standing before him. And justification means that God sees us as if we never have sinned at all. In the mind of God, in the eyes of God, He sees us through the blood of Christ, and He sees us without sin. That's justification. Now, that's not something I've done. God did that for me. That's a work of God. I don't justify myself. God justified me by faith. When I got saved, I got justification. And, and, and I thank God for it. So when God, it goes back to what we talked about last Sunday night. We see Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see him getting drunk, and we see him committing incest with his daughters. Uh, horrible, horrible. And yet when we go to Peter, how does God describe Lot? He says he's that righteous man. Righteous man, he was a drunkard incest man. But God sees him justified because he saw him through Christ. You, you and I struggle with that. That guy's a bum. But if he's saved, God that's why you, you ever read about the, the book of Hebrews 11 and God lists all these great men and women? They're great. And we, we, I read about this guy back here. He, he did some shady things. David in the Hall of Fame? Come on now, David. Did, that's bad stuff, but God glowingly reports about David, glowing reports about Moses, glowing reports about this one. Why? Because again, Hebrews 11 is seeing the man through the blood of Christ, and through the lens of justification. Look at, if you will, at Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter number 13. 
And I realize tonight we're probably causing more questions than we are answering, but we are answering questions. And this may cause you to think a little bit more. In Acts chapter number 13, He says in verse number 38, 1338, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you cannot be justified from the law of Moses. You ought to mark that verse. How are you justified? You're justified because you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not because you did something. It has nothing to do with you. God justified you. God makes you righteous in his eyes. The Bible says that you can, in, in, in the book of Romans, turn there with me if you will, we'll be closing shortly in Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. The book of Romans, the entire world is put on trial, Jew and Gentile, and everybody's found guilty. Condemned in God's courtroom. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's sentenced then God has good news for us Jesus Christ comes along in Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 24 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus look if you will verse 26 to declare I say at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus and then verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And we can go on. There's many more verses we can talk about. So our salvation then does not come because we say we believe in Christ. It isn't ours because we believe in one God. And, and we aren't justified by, before God by surrendering to his control over our lives. That is sanctification, not justification. Being declared absolutely fit for heaven by God comes on the sole grounds of our faith in Christ, our trust in Him to save us. Nothing more and nothing less. Jesus Christ paid for my sins. I'm saved because of what Christ did for me, not because of anything I do. Now, does Christ become Lord of my life? I am to make Him Lord. That's discipleship. I, a disciple, again, is somebody who who says, I'm going to dedicate my life to Christ. I'm going to give my life to Him. But again, that's... Or another way to say it is, is the person who's finally learning to walk in the Spirit and have the Spirit-filled life and to know the... And, and who keeps short accounts with God that when they sin, they confess them quickly and right away and they are in tune with the Spirit of God and, and trying to walk that path. They walk a life that very few Christians ever know because they are focused upon God and God alone in their life. And they have that fellowship that some Christians never will have. So when we think about these people, we'll close tonight. Again, we don't have time to finish this. And I have a lot to say. We'll, we will pack, get to some of the time. But understanding, there's extremes in things. And, and again, to be extremely sold out for God is great. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm not saved because I am extremely sold out for God. I'm saved by grace. Because I believed upon the crucified one. And now that I'm saved by grace, I want to walk and follow the crucified one. But as we said last week, in our Bible is filled with people, 
filled with people who never matured or grew in their faith. They stayed babes in Christ. We see these people time after time. We see Lot was an immature believer. We see the Ephesians who at many times were uh, uh, immature believers. We see that in Peter talks in, his, in, in the book of Acts that, again, they were uh, immature. Uh, Lot, Peter, and Peter, again, a man, an immature at times. Paul had to rebuke Peter for his immaturity. In, in Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, in chapter number 5, we have a believer. And what is that believer guilty of in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? What is that man guilty of? What is that believer guilty of in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5? He is guilty of a gross sin of fornication with his stepmother. A believer is committing that gross sin. Does he have lordship salvation? Did he believe and surrender completely to the will of God? Well, how could he be if he's committing fornication with his stepmother? That's, that's, that's wicked. And Paul condemns him for that. And he tells the church, you kick that guy out of the church, and if he wants to live that way, you turn him over to Satan so Satan will destroy his body. Not his soul, but his body. Let his body suffer the effects of sin. And then we find in 2 Corinthians, what happens in 2 Corinthians? That man got his life straightened out and quit sinning and got himself back in the church and doing right. But is the man in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 who remains unnamed, is he practicing lordship salvation? Obviously not, but he's still a believer. Still a believer, sad to say. And we can go through our Bible, the Galatians. What is Paul writing to the Galatians? Because they were slipping in their faith. They were missing things. They were not being what they needed to be. And, and, and Paul exhorts the Romans on this topic and pleads with them that they need to submit themselves to Christ. Anybody who's gone to a youth rally, any teenager here knows Romans chapter number 12, verses number 1 and 2. Any teenager want to quote it for me tonight? Go ahead. Go ahead. What's he telling? Amen. Let's hear it for that young lady there. Why would Paul say that to the Romans? Unless they had not done that. They're believers, but they had not fully committed themselves. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, you need to present yourselves as living sacrifices. Why? Because they had not presented themselves as living sacrifices. They hadn't come to that point in their Christianity yet. They got salvation, and they're moving along, but they haven't come to the point where Paul says, you've got to stop and just surrender it all to Christ. Surrender it all to Christ. So again, Paul says that submission and sacrifice and service are, are, are incumbent, and we need to believe those things. But again, we see people in the Bible who aren't exactly practicing these things because they're still babes in Christ sucking on the milk. Discipleship is a command, a work of obedience for believers. Both faith and discipleship are absolutely important. The one for salvation, faith is for salvation, discipleship is for sanctification. And this is a word we don't have time for, but I'll simply say this. Sanctification is twofold. There's God's work of sanctification, which means separation, where you separate. Listen, I got saved when I was 10 years old. 
I didn't start practicing my sanctification until I was 18 years old. When down the street at 261 Bergen Avenue in the middle of January 1982, I said, Jesus, I can't take it anymore. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I put my hands on the plow and I tried not to look back. And I went off serving God and trying to live for Him and do what He wanted me to do. But that's eight years. Salvation, and then finally my sanctification where I said, you know what, I'm separating. I'm separating. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do certain things. And in my life, there were a lot of temptations, a lot of trials, a lot of testings early on in my life. Especially graduation, everybody's graduating. And back in those days, we didn't have project graduation where they shipped you on a bus and took you off to an amusement park. Back then, every house in town had a party. And everybody, and you just went to house after house after house all night long. Everybody partying and drinking all night long. And I'm going to the parties with my friends, but I'm not drinking. I'm just going to have a Coke. And I'm drinking a Coca-Cola while all my friends are getting drunk and high and doing all kinds of other stuff. You say you shouldn't have been there. I know. I was, my sanctification was moving along little by little. And slowly I was getting there. So eventually he said, you know what? I'm not going to the parties no more. Why? You can just go there, drink your Coke, man. Well, nobody, listen, when I was in high school, I saw a friend with a bottle of Coke. I said, hey, let me have a sip. I took a bottle of Coke and it nearly killed me. Because that wasn't Coke in the Coke can. Amen? They mixed something else, but they had a can of Coke just so the cops would not think anything. So they don't know what's in the Coke can, so I just didn't go to the parties anymore. What was I doing? Getting a little more closer to Jesus. Then later on, I'm listening to my music. The Lord says, you really want to listen to that, Matt? This is a few years later. Matt, you really want to listen to that? No, I guess not. We'll get rid of this too. Practicing more sanctification. Hey, Matt, you think you really want to do that? I guess not, Lord. You want me to get rid of this too? You need to get rid of that, Matt. Closer to Jesus as I go along. This is not a process of salvation. It's a process of my sanctification or my discipleship. More of a practice of me making Jesus Lord of my life by obeying what he wants me to do. I'm 59 years old. And the Lord still looks at Matt, you really want to do that? This took you okay. I can I need to write a book about it. But things that I wanted, things I prayed about, things I pleaded for, God said, no. Oh, man. You're going to go away? You're going to walk away? You're going to leave me? Well, no. I really want that, Lord. Well, you can't have it. You're going to follow me? Yeah, I'll follow you. Even though you don't have that? Yeah, even though I don't have it. Because you're God and I'm not. That's sanctification. I didn't get saved at 10 years old because I gave everything to Jesus. I knew I was going, there was a hell, and I didn't want to go there, and Jesus would save me if I asked him, and I made him my Savior. As I've moved along, he's become Lord of my life, and I'm practicing sanctification. That's simple enough, but again, easy believism, just believe. Well, but no, you've got to know what you're believing. And then I move on in my faith, and I grow in my faith, and I grow, how? In the grace of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm growing in grace. 
Well, I kept you here for an hour. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us in spite of ourselves. <laughs> loved us even when we're saved and, and foolish and continue to work with us. Thank you for the, the pleading of the Spirit of God. And bless this time and hour now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If God spoke to your heart, you want to come tonight? <laughs>